We're your hosts, Dana and Kara, and this is From the Mouths of Babes. Hey, babes, welcome back. Today is part two of our discussion with Dr. Dodini. As you recall from part one, we discussed with Dr. Dodini about the three different types of spouses. He taught us about the house model, and within that house model, you will recall the kitchen-level relationship, some of those being our own children. Today, we are excited to dive deeper into this section of the book, The Three Kinds of Parents. I'm excited to dive into this this topic. Um, In the preview for this chapter, Fred, you say, quote, that parenting was the first and foremost responsibility given to the world's first couple, um, referencing Adam and Eve, and all other responsibilities in life are appendages to it. It also provides the most challenging and transformative experience in life, transformative for parents as well as for children, end quote. I really love that phrase and that statement. Um, We had another author on a prior episode. Her name was Meredith Redman, and she wrote a book called Dear Jesus, Send Coffee. And she also kind of repeats that same sentiment. She talks about how like the beauty of parenting is that our kids are raising us as we raise them. So it seems that you're both saying the same thing, which I love. So can you talk a little bit about this, of how parenting is the most challenging and transformative experience for not only the parents, but as well as the children. Yeah. Um, just as childhood is new to a child, parenthood is new to a parent. Hopefully as children, we grow up in a home where we learn the basic skills of parenting as we watch our parents. We learn how to treat one another and our families. Um, we develop peer relationships. As we grow, we find you know romantic relationships. We marry, we create a partnership there. All those experiences are building upon each other. As I say in the book, the process begins when I choose to be a son person, right? That from birth up until adolescence and early adulthood, I'm learning how to be the best son person I can be. That prepares me to be a son spouse. Being a son spouse gives me experiences that help prepare me to be a son parent. And being a son parent prepares me to become a a son citizen in society. So for children, certainly we expect them to obey their parents and, and to pay attention to the things they're taught. We also expect parents to go out and learn how to be the best parents they can be. And we have a lot of good resources in that regard today. Um, that weren't necessarily that easily available, you know, generations ago. We typically parented the way we were parented as children. And so now we have access to a lot more information that helps us better understand what good parenting looked like. But bottom line, if you look at the purpose of life, why are we here? You know, from certainly from the religious perspective, for most people, is that we're here to gain experiences and learn how to become the best people we can be. And parenthood is is a critically important Um, part of that process so we are growing as adults the the experience of parenthood transforms us hopefully into better people more compassionate more patient more willing to sacrifice for the welfare of others better willing to delay our own personal gratification for the welfare of others and and certainly childhood is a time of growing and experiencing and learning new things each step of the way so yeah it is a transformative experience for both the child and the parent. 
I'm curious in what ways or specific examples you have seen this in your own life as you have parented 10 children. I think for mom and I both, we've, we've probably followed a lot of what we, what we saw in our own homes growing up and then try to improve on it. And we, hopefully we think that's what our, our children are doing as well, that whatever we did well as parents, you'll learn from and implement and learn how to be even better parents than we were. So each generation hopefully has the opportunity to improve on what they've learned growing up, or in some cases, the opposite occurs. Some cases from generation to generation, we lose information, we lose truths, and families descend into chaos and darkness. So that's part of our responsibility as we grow up as children, is to learn how to be the best parents we can be, so we can continue to improve on what we've learned. It's interesting. I had that written down as something that I wanted to talk about. Um, so I'm glad that you brought it up, but I love this idea. So in specifically talking about the different types of people, as you mentioned, you have the potential to be a sun parent, a moon parent, a star parent, and all of that is pretty contingent upon one, just the type of person you choose to be, how that translates into your marriage as a spouse, and then translates into how you are as a parent. And then, as you mentioned, into a citizen, but one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that what takes us from being a sun parent to a moon parent is that many of us fall into this category of having too much concern about how we're perceived by others and too little concern for what's in the best interest of our children. And that when we do that and fail to reinforce principles of truth and light, over time, as you mentioned previously, each generation loses more light and truth and they have less to pass on to their posterity, which in turn, you say that when we lose the dedication and commitment to one another and the sun values of light and truth that we teach in our homes, that will be the same degree to which we lose sun values as a society. So I found that really fascinating. That is this idea that generationally we can lose things if we aren't implementing the principles of light and truth that our parents taught us. Yeah, absolutely. And you see that at, at the global level, literally, we, we see what happens in societies when uh, the family is no longer the focus, when strengthening families is not, when governments are no longer focused on making better, more successful families, it weakens society in general. And you can certainly see that across the globe. When we lose that focus, dysfunctional, chaotic, disorganized families, disengaged families will produce dysfunctional, disorganized, disengaged societies. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And it, it goes back to like beginning of time, like that's the biblical cycle, right? And yeah. three generations passed away and then all society fell to utter darkness and was destroyed like <laughs> right you're right i mean we see that in that cycle certainly in ancient e uh, israel we see that in you know old testament and new testament times um is that when we lose the light and fail to pass it on to our children and to really encourage them to preserve it protect it and to teach it to their children it, each generation seems to lose a part of it and it, it doesn't take long for society to descend into darkness when they've lost those foundational principles. So what are some simple ways in your opinion that parents can teach 
principles of light and truth in everyday life? Because that seems like such a big task. Like it seems a little overwhelming as a parent. I know that I struggle sometimes thinking about simple and practical everyday habits of what I can do to teach my daughter principles of light and truth. So do you have any specific examples or ideas of ways to do that? Yeah. Well, in the book, I use um, Booker T. Washington as a really good example of what I think Sun Parenting is all about. And from his life, if you read his book, Up From Slavery, it's really short. It's only a little over, what, 115 pages. Um, his life is just a great example of some of these principles. I can give you some specifics that I talk about in the book. Um, the dignity of hard work and the importance of self-reliance. Booker Washington taught that to all the students at uh, um, at Tuskegee, the, the, the school he started. Maintaining honesty and integrity, even in the face of great difficulties. Um, his life was a, a very good example of that, of that principle. Um, standing up for what is right, even when facing opposition for doing so. He certainly did, even amongst his own people, when he criticized um, a lot of the black ministers and, and pastors in, uh, in the churches in the late 1800s because they weren't very well trained and prepared for the ministry. He took a lot of heat for that, but he was right. And eventually the, all those churches came around to acknowledging that he was and increased the training. Um, he also taught that with freedom comes great responsibility. He was born into slavery, but when he was made free, the first thing he wanted to do was get an education. And he was willing to make any sacrifice necessary to do that. And he wanted his people to take freedom um, seriously and accept the responsibility that comes with it. Um, he taught about the care and appropriate use of our bodies to be healthy, you know, to, to wash and, and to avoid the problems with alcohol and drugs and a lot of what we're seeing in today's society. And about being true to yourself and resisting temptations to try and impress others by appearing to be something that you're not. And there's a, a really interesting story about him and his mother when he was a child. He wanted this store-bought cap that the other kids at school were wearing but his family's too poor to buy one so his mother made him one out of homespun which is kind of denim uh, fabric um, it wasn't probably quite as nice and impressive as the store-bought ones but his mother told him i'm not gonna go into debt to get you a store-bought hat just so you can make a good impression and he always remembered that experience and his mother taught him um, they were very close and she was really the foundation for his life and what became a very successful um, ministry to, to his people. Um, it, you know, his mom taught him to avoid debt and to be content to live within his means and the importance of patience and duty and enduring to the end. Um, Booker faced a lot of real, real challenges in getting that school started and maintaining it. And uh, he did some remarkable work. And he also taught his students how to forgive because, you know, after the war, there were a lot of people in slavery who were very angry and aggressive, but he tells a story of uh, on the, you know, the plantation where he lived when the people there really did care about, about their masters, about the people who owned them. I, I assume they were treated fairly well, but he says a lot of times those, the, the white people didn't have any of the skills. Uh, once the slaves were freed, those people couldn't support themselves. They didn't even know how to work their own farms. Hmm. And so he said, oftentimes 
the black slaves would share their money with their white impoverished masters. So I thought, what an amazing example of forgiveness and reaching out to others, even those who may have persecuted or, or used you previously. So yeah, his life is just um, a stellar example of what I think good parenting, son parenting is all about. I love that. I think what I took away from a lot of those principles is one that there are, it's not as overwhelming as it might seem that every day we have opportunities to teach principles to our children in simple and practical ways. And that as we do that, as one of those principles is forgiveness, I think we can also as parents have a little grace for ourselves and knowing that we might make mistakes along the way. Um, but as we mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, we're all learning and growing together. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing, but, um, I also love this idea and you quote this in the book that some people are willing to stand out. So others will recognize what they stand for and whether that's you as a parent standing out in the way that you are teaching your children and helping them to know what you stand for. I think the natural consequence of that is that your kids will do the same, that they'll stand out because they will recognize the principles of light and truth that they've been taught. And then other people will be able to recognize what they stand for in return. Yeah. I mean, if there ever has been a time in history when some people around the world are hungry for leadership, it's now. And for some parents, some spouses, some citizens really need to be willing to stand up, even face opposition for it, to be an example, a light to others, because it's so, so important and so needed in today's world that we need more sun examples. So this generation of children can grow up realizing there is a better way of being, a better way of living. And if some people don't have the courage to stand up and demonstrate those principles and values, who is going to? You know, it's the old saying, I think it's common with, uh, or with amongst the Jewish communities, if, if not now, when? And if not, if not me, who? And that certainly applies to our day and the need for more sun people to stand up and be recognized. I, I think that's interesting. And I, I, I wonder how a sun person who, who knows that they have a lot to offer, but they have a lot of like fear or something like holding them back from say running for a local office or even joining the PTA. Cause they're just like, I'm thinking about me. I'm like, I can't even like, I can't even commit to being like the room mom. Cause like, that's like a lot of pressure, you know, how do how do you think as an individual, you can overcome the little blocks from being a light and an example, taking that full step forward into your sunness yeah. to shine. You know, if I could invent a cure for cancer, would I want the rest of the world to know about it? Of course. Yeah. Who wouldn't? But would I face a lot of opposition if I said I did have the cure to cancer? Absolutely. Every other research scientist who wants to beat beat me to finding the cure of cancer is going to be angry because someone else got there first. 
we see it all the time when people try to destroy the reputation and careers of other people because they're doing something that you know some other people may disagree with it, it, it does take courage in today's world to be a sun person you will be the focus of some negative attention that's okay as i say in the book do it anyway opposition is to be expected plan for it prepare for it so that when the time comes you feel strong enough and resilient enough to stand up in the face of whatever opposition you may have to face. I like that. It makes me think like, okay, I'm not going to go run for, you know, school board member right now or mayor or anything, you know, at this point in my life, but maybe right now the best way to shine is obviously helping my kids be kind and not be jerks that punch people. Yeah. Um, also <laughs> creating a home where my kids' friends even like feel safe and where and kids are learning principles sure. just by being in your home. Some people typically don't seek attention. Um, they're not vain people. They're not seeking, you know, for recognition. They do honorable things without <laughs> seeking for honor. And I think that's one of the reasons it's challenging sometimes for some people is that they look at others in the world who seek for attention, seek for power, seek for influence, and then they use it in selfish ways or they misdirect people towards you know, the, the darkness. Certainly moon and, and star people um, are drawn to positions of power and influence in the world. And when they get them, they use them for themselves, for their own benefits. So that's not typically the way sun people think, but certainly we can think of some great sun leaders throughout history who have been put in positions of leadership and became great examples to others. And so I think sun people need to stand up in their communities, become involved, like you say, with school boards and run for public office and, and get involved in the communities so that they can share their, their knowledge, their opinions, their point of views with others and hopefully gather more sun people into their fold. So going back to something that Kara mentioned, um, I like this idea that she was tying in of our responsibility as parents. And you actually specifically in the book define this. So you, you define it as the prime, prime directive of parenting and how it's our job as parents. You list two different things that one, it's to keep our children safe physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and two, to prepare them for adulthood. So how can parents do this while also respecting a child's free will, um, honoring their personhood and preparing them for an autonomous life as an adult? Because I know that's the daily struggle of yeah. giving your children enough autonomy and allowing them to make decisions for themselves. Yeah, the, the two elements of the prime directive, keep them safe and prepare them for adulthood. So you can't do something in one that, that interferes with the other. So if, if parents say, okay, how do I keep my kids physically, emotionally, and spiritually safe? Oh, I never let them out of their room. Uh, I don't let them go to public schools. I don't let them play with other kids and don't share their belief system. Okay, is that preparing for adulthood? No, no. So what you do for one has to also accomplish the other. Hmm. So how can we keep our kids physically, emotionally, spiritually safe? Sometimes we have to expose them to the realities of life. I mean, a good example is it, it, for, for kids to grow up in, in homes that are hermetically sealed and disinfected, 
um, how does that affect them physically? Well, they don't, their immune system doesn't develop as well. They have, they're more prone to allergies. So we want kids to play in the dirt. We want them to put things in their mouths that they shouldn't and uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. Why? Because it actually helps to build their immune system. So emotionally and spiritually, we want our kids to face some opposition in life, but not so much that it's overwhelming to them. So they have to face challenges when they go to school. They have to face people who disagree with them and learn how to present their point of view and honor their value system without fear and without feeling that they have to attack other people who disagree with them. And that's part of preparing our kids for adulthood is learning how to be civil with one another and learning how to be compassionate, even with people who disagree with us, even when they may violently disagree with us, um, we don't want to teach our kids that violence is the, is the way to respond. Sure. So this, this made me think of a couple of real life examples. Well, first of all, when you were talking about uh, with Booker T. Washington, with freedom, with freedom comes responsibility. I try to think of like, okay, real life. Okay. When your kid turns 16 and you say, here's the keys, there you go. Yeah. here's your freedom. Don't mess it up. Like, right. But do you just give them the keys? No, no, you you've you, taught you, them, and you say you, you're responsible for your life. You're responsible for the lives of those around you or those in your car, and you know these are the boundaries. You know, but that just what like like okay, what does freedom look like for a kid? A real freedom happens when you get a car, and then I also thought just when you're teaching the talking about like letting your kids get exposed, it made me think of the story of. Jared, our brother-in-law, teaching our niece, our niece Ivy came home and used a cuss word. Uh -huh. And he was like, why are you using that word? Like, oh, well, I just heard it. What you know, I don't even know what it means. And he's like, yeah, let me tell you what it means. It's gross. <laughs> so he like defined it for her. And then he was like, tell me all the bad words that you could think of. And he wrote them on like the big dry erase board and like even words that were like nonsense, like butt face booger. Penis. like <laughs> <laughs> and the girl you know he's like this is what this word means do you want to be walking around like with a caca mouth like saying what these words mean they're not nice yeah. like they're not polite it's right. a little embarrassing you know and it was just such an interesting conversation and ivy re just recently retold me the story and she was like yeah i didn't cuss like i grew up in chicago and didn't cuss mm -hmm. like at all growing up and and we were like i was just like wow so that really did work okay like it giving does. letting your kids see and know and educate them not just being like the we don't say that word because it's a yucky it's a potty word just a potty you know and it, we don't talk about yeah, it just yeah yeah you don't know why and yeah. that's no you kids gotta know these things they gotta know the real words yeah. But yeah that just like made me a real life example of you know, let me just enlighten you of why we don't yeah. use yucky words. <laughs> I mean, I've always in some way, you know, as you guys were growing up, I didn't feel the need to dumb everything down to a childhood level because I know if you didn't understand it now, you would in a few more years, probably. And that's when things would kind of click and, you know, the dots would connect. And um, I, I think parents demonstrate to their children that they have confidence in their children when you become fearless communicators in your family, and I talk about that in the book, 
you set a tone in your family where we can talk about anything. We're not afraid of any subject. That builds confidence in kids. They will come to their parents more likely when they have questions because they know it's not going to be, it's not going to overwhelm mom and dad, right? And they literally want answers and they deserve them. And that's like, you know, like if she grew up knowing why she didn't want to use those words. Your little, you know, your brother David, when he came home from kindergarten one day and he dropped a an F-bomb, I think, in class, and the teacher was pretty upset with him. He came home, he was just all upset, and he went up to mom and said, mom, mom, teach me all the bad words so I know what not to say, which uh, <laughs> we didn't think that was appropriate for a kindergartner, but um, certainly he's, he's learned over the years, yeah, there are some words we don't use because they're not, they don't mean anything, and they're not nice, and, you know, you should be able to pick a better way of expressing yourself than dropping profanities, you know, every other word in a sentence. So, well, and it's interesting because I think this ties perfectly into your discussion on what helps children to thrive. And you specifically say that they're, they're the two most important needs that children of all ages need to thrive Mm -hmm. is one, the need to know the rules and two, the need to know they belong. Yeah, I actually heard that um, on a podcast, uh, R.C. Peck is investment, you know, advisement and stuff like that. And he was one to mention it. I thought, yes, that absolutely is true. Kids need to know the rules and, and, and why they're important. And they need to know that they belong primarily to their families. We all need accountability in life. And if we're not taught the rules, or if you grow up in a very permissive home where the rules are all relative and you get to make up your own as you go, that's not good for kids. They will struggle, make a lot of mistakes if they're not being explained what are the governing principles, values, and rules of life that will help us be successful and help us in our relationships with others. And I talk about the four different styles of parenting, authoritarian, authoritative, permissive, and disengaged, and how each of those different kinds of parents approach discipline and teaching their kids. And it makes a big difference authoritative homes produce the best outcomes for kids and for adults because they teach correct principles. They have very clear rules and expectations. They enforce them consistently, but they do it with love, with compassion, and with patience. That's what's the best environment for kids to grow up in. So let's get into that because I also found that that was really fascinating in the book is that in describing the three kinds of parents as it relates to yeah yeah. well the three kinds of parents as far as like sun sun, moon and star right but you introduce the four styles of parenting and how they can relate to the metaphor of the sun moon and stars let's kind of give a basic definition and example of each so authoritarian you talk about how this is moon parent worst Oh, <laughs> well, it can be moon or, or star parenting. Um, yeah. Well, so what does that do? When, I, when a kid grows up afraid of everything, afraid they're going to make a mistake, right? Afraid they're going to be rejected by their parents because authoritarian parents will use that. They'll, they'll reject them. They'll isolate them. They'll overpunish them. They'll expect perfect performance all the time from their children which creates a tremendous amount of insecurity where kids grow up believing they're only valued for what they do and not for who they are as a person. So as a result, they begin to see themselves and the world that way. 
So they have trouble connecting with other people. And oftentimes authoritarian parents produce authoritarian, bullying, violent kids. So the authoritarian moon parent is the one who is overly invested and overly involved in controlling their kids' lives. They may not be, I mean, they can be real permissive, but, but they're, you know, the, the helicopter parent, the snowplow parent, the ones mm -hmm. that want to make it easy for their kids by removing all the obstacles in their path. That doesn't create right. resilient kids. Right. That's creating enmeshment and that then the child then is constantly seeking for approval from uh, the uh, other people. Yeah. Everyone, they're constantly need a approval to function even into adulthood. Yeah. And those are the kids that grow up very feeling very entitled. Mm -hmm. because, you know, if they, if they got all the attention and all the awards, but they didn't have to really work very hard for it, then they expect it to be easy all the time. That's interesting. So permissive parents. Yeah. They just, it's like living in the sixties all over again. There's no rules. It's go, it's all good. You know, so kids who are out there struggling to figure out what the rules of society are. No boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. And they can often get really hurt just because yeah. they make a lot of impulsive, you know, adolescent decisions and they don't have anybody there to tell them what they should and shouldn't be doing. Right. Just no definition really of natural consequences. Yeah. And then you have disengaged parents, which just don't care. Yeah. Just, your attitude is, yeah, as long as my, you know, stay out of my way, don't make my life complicated and we coexist in those kinds of families. And, and so the kids mm -hmm. grow up feeling unloved, uncared for. They have no boundaries because the parents are just not there. They just don't care. Right. And um, it's interesting, authoritarian and disengaged families produce pretty much the same kind of kid. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So authoritarian should not be confused with authoritative. And I think that can kind of get tricky because they both, have authority at the root of the word. So then what's the difference between authoritarian where they're super controlling versus authoritative? Okay. Well, I, I, I think I'll give an example of the book. Son parents, authoritative parents allow their children to progressively with age to have more freedom and more responsibility. So they're given the opportunity to make more choices but they're also held accountable for the natural consequences of those choices. And that's how kids learn to make better decisions is, uh, is they have to face the consequences of their choices. And hopefully they'll make those mistakes younger in life when the consequences are fairly minor compared to later in life, you know, in adolescence when they might run into some real severe consequences. So this obviously needs to be age appropriate, which you mentioned. This is kind of where I struggle is what does that mean then? What does that mean for a two-year-old versus a five-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 17-year-old, you know, because that's going to change. But I think the important part is that it needs to start from a young age. So yeah, how do you start? Well, I think family dinners are a great time for these kinds of conversations. Right? I, I teach a lot of parents to uh, use what we used in the wilderness program I used to work for, um, a talking stick, and you just pass the stick around the table. You know, at dinner, you bring up a topic, it could be anything, the kids can bring it up, the parents can bring it up, and everybody gets one or two minutes to hold the talking stick and share their opinion about that topic, and then it's passed on to the next person. So people learn how to be better speakers and better listeners. They also learn that 
they're not they're not afraid to ask questions. Mm-hmm. So that's the best things parents can do for children is to encourage them to ask questions. That tells you where their thinking is. If they hear something at school or see something and they come home and ask about it, okay, you need to address it. And in today's world, kids are exposed to a lot of stuff at a much younger age than parents think. Average age now of children exposed to hardcore pornography is eight years of age before they even understand anything about what sexuality is. So parents have to be prepared to have those kinds of discussions um, depending on what their kids' experiences are. Which you talk about that of the exposure and how it's the example you give of how it's like getting a smallpox vaccination to prevent your child from getting the full blown disease. Like the children need to be exposed to enough information about the evils and ills of the world. In addition to a much larger dosage of something that's good and true. So accurate information, if they want to develop some measure of immunity. Um, But I know a lot of parents struggle with this idea there's a, an argument and a concern that if they talk to their kids about sex or pornography or drugs, that this will make them more curious and yeah. that they'll go Google it. Yeah. yeah. They'll, yeah. they'll go Google it or they'll, they'll yeah. go and try drugs. Um, but I think based on what you're saying, you would, you would disagree with that. So why yeah, is that? Because like I said, if you're asking questions and if your kids are fearless communicators, which kids usually are, um, you'll get a sense of where their knowledge level is. So you don't give more information that's necessary to address the question, the concern. And again, a much healthier dose of positive principles that reinforce the negative realities that kids are going to grow up facing in the world. And, and for people that read the Bible, okay, good example. Is every person in the Bible a good person? No. And no. Any of those people make some big, big time mistakes? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk David, King David. Yeah. Okay, so why? Why put those stories in the Bible? Aren't they going to make kids want to grow up and, you know, and commit adultery and murder? <laughs> no. <laughs> we're teaching them about why those mistakes were made, what led up to them, what contributed to them, and how not to make them yourself. So even pointing out to kids bad examples or examples of bad behavior is an opportunity to explain why it's bad behavior, what the consequences will be for people that continue to make those kinds of choices. And that totally makes sense. And I agree with that. One thing though, that I'm really curious about. So in the book, you talk about there, you share a story about how this early 1970s, there was somebody from the Peace Corps who was serving in India. Oh yeah. Um, and he visited some of the lowest caste members of the Indian society, the untouchables and how he saw this, he thought, he thought what he was seeing was like a blatant case of child abuse. So instead of seeing like a mobile hanging above an infant's crib, he saw a piece of barbed wire that would in his mind, surely cause pain to a child <laughs> if they would reach up and grab it. And so yeah. this uh, Peace Corps volunteer asked the parents why they would do such a thing. And his their explanation was that they're members of the lowest caste system in India and that their child would experience nothing but pain and heartbreak throughout his life. 
So by introducing him to pain from the very beginning of his life, they felt they were doing him a favor and preparing him for the greater pain that would inevitably follow. And when I heard that, I, I like kind of cringed. I was like, what? So what's the balance? Like you obviously don't want to inflict pain on your child. No, but in their, in their culture, their frame of mind was, yeah, this is inevitable. There's nothing I can do to protect my child. Um, they are going to experience pain and suffering because they're part of this cast, the untouchables, right? And so it was a really, and from their point of view, I think it was a compassionate act. Well, I, and I compared that to, you know, the Johnny Cash saw a song about a boy named Sue, mm-hmm. about a father who deserts his, his you know, infant child and, and mother uh, and saddles him with a, with a girl's name. That's a terrible thing to do to a boy. And he grows up being teased and, you know, he's constantly fighting and rejected and not fitting in and people are making fun of him. So he grows up angry and he vows to find, track his dad down and kill him for giving him that awful, terrible name. And if you know the story, if you've ever heard the song, they do meet in a bar in Tennessee someplace and have this, you know, battle to the death. And uh, at one point, you know, the son gets the drop on the dad and the dad just smiles and says, you should thank me for giving you that name. And taught you how to fight. Yeah, yeah, it made you tough. Made, made you a real man. That's it. And, you know, so, so here's a dad who's really a disengaged father who doesn't really care about his kid. I mean, he was willing to kill him in that fight if, if necessary. And then and all of a sudden now he spins it, right? Like gaslighters. Right. They always spin things. Yes. <laughs> and he says, oh, you should thank me. You're the one with the problem. I gave you this name. Uh, you'd grow up tough and strong and able to face the world. And, you know, when the son and dad embrace and there's this love fest, but at the end, you know, Johnny Cash says, if, if I have a kid someday, I'm going to name him Bob or Bill or Jim, anything but Sue, right? So he knows better. He knows that that was not any kind of a nice thing that his father had done to him. And so I compare those two, and I just ask the reader to decide um, which one is the son parent, which, which one is the star parent. Um, even that, that poor family in India, I, I absolutely am convinced that if those parents could have done anything, any, they would have made any sacrifice to give their kids a better chance in life. And yeah. they didn't have that opportunity. So they tried to make life as manageable as, as they could. And for them, why not introduce pain early on so our kid gets used to it? Then it'll be easier later on. And I, and uh, it's a difficult thing to do. And you know, your heart goes, heart goes out to people that are stuck in that situation. But in my mind, I thought that was an act, that was intended as an act of compassion, not an act of disengagement and abuse. Right, it was a teaching moment. It's, it's, and hopefully it's more symbolic than literal, but. Yeah, it is. I'm just, <laughs> just drawing a comparison. But I tell yeah. parents, and um, one of the things, uh, I call it the, the, the parental oath of office. It's part of the prime directive. I, I, I think I'm going to get some plaques made so I can give them to parents. And this is what it says. And you write this down and you sign it and you read it to your kid, okay? As your parent. I am bound by the prime directive of parenting to keep you safe and to prepare you for adulthood. I will not hesitate to act decisively whenever I see that you are at risk physically, emotionally, or spiritually, or when I believe you need to understand something that is essential to your happiness and success in the adult world. 
That's authoritative parenting. That's the point. Oh, that's great. I, I had to I had to do that today with Gavin. He was he's not been putting his stinking seatbelt on, and I told him to, and he was like, "Shut up!" And <laughs> I slammed the brakes on, and I said, "Put your seatbelt on now." And he said, "You don't even love me." And I said, "It's because I love you that you have to wear your seatbelt so that I can keep you safe. That's because I love you, and that's why you should listen to me so you're safe." I don't even want to talk to you unless it's to keep you safe and make you better. Like, so you those, said it those, just like that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. much. Yeah, pretty much. And, and what do kids get? What, what What did he come away with? Um, he um, well, he didn't say anything, but he put a seatbelt on. <laughs> okay, okay. So what he? I'm guessing what he felt was okay. Mommy is really ticked off right now, but she really cares about my safety, and she's not afraid. Yeah to make me do what's right. I think in the way I phrased it, like I think he actually understood it this time. Cause he tells me you don't love me, mom every day, every oh. single day. And it's just, you know, and it like Gavin, you're, you can't say that to me. That's not kind. That doesn't make me have good feelings. Like, you know, and I usually kind of phrase like that, but I think it was such a good example, like a physical thing that I, that like it's because I love you that you have to listen to me and I have the boundary you know and he didn't say you don't love me the rest of the day so I think it was a win I think it sunk in even though he was it's a rough day I if I drank I would drink today (laughs) (laughs) and and if parents or feelers communicators they don't have a problem with dealing with an obnoxious child and explaining to them why we do what we do and why we teach them as we do. I mean, there are situations and I've seen this where kids get totally out of control and are very abusive to their parents. And if the parents don't stand up and resist that, they're just reinforcing that bad behavior. And in the long run, that can be much worse for a kid. Oh, for sure. I think overall, what I'm taking from this conversation of what I want to implement in my parenting is the phrase that you repeated a few times of being a fearless communicator, creating a space and an environment in my home where we regularly invite conversation about virtually any topic. And that I think if we do that, that's when we really will see principles of light and truth in action. We'll see our children learning them and we'll see the difference that it's making in our home. And I think other people will be able to recognize that as well whether it's our children's friends, other family members, other parental friends, whoever that might be. So, Well, and and I say in the book that sun people are attracted to sun people. They will see in other people's actions, their thoughts, the way they live their lives, um, what it means to be a sun person. And if they want to be one too, they'll be attracted to those people and they'll they'll be willing to integrate those same values and behaviors into their own life. And by the same token, moon people attract moon people and star people attract star people. So society has begun to divide along some pretty clear lines. You know, it's like this, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we want to give people a clear option, what it means to be a sun person, what the advantages are, and how that will shape our eternal destinies. And if people want something else, if they want to be a moon or star person, that's, that's up to them. 
You know, you can't prevent people from using their agency and choosing what kind of person they want to be. The best thing you can do is give them the best example so that when they make a decision, it's an informed decision. Absolutely. I, I want to end with this quote um, that you actually quote somebody else. You say, David Brooks teaches his students at, the, at Yale University, quote, you make four great commitments in life to a spouse and a family, to a vocation, to a philosophy or faith and to a community, how well you make and live out those commitments will determine the quality of your life. But I think you repeat that same sentiment as well, is that the type of person that we choose to become a sun, moon, or star person determines the type of spouse we will be, the type of parent we will be, the type of citizen we will be, and that will determine the quality of our lives. Amen. All right. Should should we transition to everyone's favorite segment? This came out of the mouth of my babe. So the other day, Parker got a bloody nose because he's picking his nose and it bled a lot <laughs> and it really wouldn't stop. And he was very concerned about it. Um, and he got blood all over my white very expensive today it was it was great but i even put like a one of those teeny tiny ob tampons up his nose and it was like expanding and he's like ah ah my nose it's ripping apart and i took it out and it was like super coagulated it just kept bleeding and i was like seriously did you stick something up there like what were you digging for in there man like he's like i don't know but the funniest part is he just was like I'm going to die. I don't want to die. Mom, please don't let me die. I was like, I don't think anyone's ever died from a bloody nose. He's like, mom, people bleed to death all the time. Don't you know anything? People bleed to death. Mom, I'm going to die. My body. Why is my body doing this to me? Why are you failing me? Body, please don't let me die today, mom. It was like went on for like 15, 20 minutes. And finally it stopped bleeding. And I, you know, wiped it. And I was like, okay, I think, I think it's good. And he's like, oh, oh, I didn't die. Okay. Okay. And he just went back to his like computer and regular like couple schedule of, hey mom yeah mom uh it's still not bleeding i'm not gonna die today like <laughs> all right thanks uh, <laughs> so yeah that was good fun stuff mm -hmm. um, I, I it wasn't something that your older brother said it was more what he did when aaron was i don't know he was probably only maybe 18 months old maybe a little bit older if he didn't get his way, he would bang his head on the floor, which drove your mom crazy. She could not watch him do that. She would have to jump in and pick him up and, you know, give him whatever he wanted, basically. And, and, and so we were sitting in the living room. This is when I was still in college in Chico. And um, I, I was holding on to your mom. I said, okay, if he does this again, you don't do anything. Right. So he came in and he said something and the answer was no. He got down on his hands and knees on the floor, started banging his head on the floor. And your mom was just going nuts. And I was just holding on to her so she couldn't get up. And so Aaron stopped and he looked up at mom. And then he looked back at the floor and banged his head on the floor again and then stopped and looked up at mom and she's not doing anything. So he, Seriously? he banged his head a couple more times. And then he went, 
he puts his hand up to his forehead and goes, oh, because it was hurting now, right? So he walked over to the couch, picked up a pillow, put the pillow on the floor and banged his head on the pillow. So we never had a problem with him after that, banging his head on things because we just yeah, let him experience the natural consequences <laughs> of his behavior. And it wasn't oh, getting the reaction from his mother that he wanted. So Yeah, little turd. Yeah. <laughs> Sawyer had a phase of doing that too. Oh, um, man. Okay, I have two stories just because one of them we actually had today and it was too funny. So one of them is about Sawyer and one of them is about her cousin who she's been hanging out with. We went to this like farmer's market and they had like an actual, it was at an actual farm. And so we were going around looking at all of the animals and there were some pigs and we were feeding the pig some leaves. And I asked Sawyer if she wanted to feed the pig and she goes, no, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> She's never said that before, which was so funny. It's fair, Sawyer. Okay, so then after the farmer's market, we went and looked at a house with one of our sisters. And we were walking around and my mom was asking her daughter, Lily, like what she liked about the house. And we, I had mentioned like before, like, oh, the rooms upstairs, they have a Jack and Jill uh, bathroom they're they're connected with the jack and jill and so lily had overheard that but really didn't know and she had said earlier like i don't know what that means so we like tried to explain to her like oh it just means that there's two rooms connected with one bathroom so she grammy's like okay like well lily why do you like this house and she's like well i like that there are the rooms upstairs and so I think that if we were to buy this house, um, this would be my room, uh, preferably the Jill room, <laughs> which is just so funny. Like she's like between Jack and Jill, like I'm going to choose Jill. Like yeah, it's, yeah. he still doesn't get the concept. Um, and I at eight at eight. Yeah. I just, I actually, I think she's nine, but it was just so funny and so innocent and like so quick. And I just like lost it. And it was so funny. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. I was just thinking back when, right after I had graduated around the time I was graduating high school and we were at um, some neighbor's house for a church youth group activity, preparing for a pioneer trek. For some reason, this was someone's good idea to go to someone else's house and milk their cow. You <laughs> know who it was. And I like they're sitting on this little stool that you have to like balance on like one leg on a stool. And I'm like, I'm going to fall over and everyone's going to see my butt crack because <laughs> these jeans are terrible in 2008. And also there's bacteria all over that udder. It's filthy. Plus that cow might kick me in the face. Like I'm, I'm going through all worst case scenarios. Right. And so I'm like, no, I'm good. Thank you. And dad happens to be there. He's like, just milk the cow. And I was like, no. And then all like my youth group leaders, like Kara, just milk the cow. And I had like five adults in my face. Stop being a brat and just milk the cow. I'm like, I'm not going to milk the freaking cow. <laughs> and I like burst into tears and like left. And I was like, I'm not doing this. I am 18 years old. How dare you? <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm going to milk the freaking
freaking out, embarrass myself, or get kicked in the face, or get listeria or something from this. <laughs> mad cow <laughs> disease. Yeah, yeah. I was like so mad at you, Dad, for this like not like reading my mind. Like, there's a worst case scenario going on in my head. Let me be. No, you know, Mom and I, I and all I, the older kids had plenty of experiences milking no. goats. So. You know, and then we had those boy goats in our backyard in Arizona and they were aggressive and terrifying and I, they yeah. were going to come in the house and murder me in my sleep with their weird eyes. So uh, yeah, yeah, I, weird. I'm terrified of like all the things and it, it hit a, it hit a nice, like, like, you know, yeah. uh, top of the bell curve of my afraid of everything around 18. So and that's one of the challenges. <laughs> it's pretty parents. traumatic. Thank you. When you have a large family, you, you taught all the older kids how to tie their shoes. I think you just assumed that the younger kids figured out how to do it too. Because one of you guys came to, to mom one day, can't remember who it was, and said, teach me to tie my shoes. And mom said, didn't we already do that? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so sometimes probably David. the trickle down effect doesn't always work with parenting. So, what you taught the older kids doesn't always uh, find its way to the younger kids. So yeah. We learned a lot of things just by watching and osmosis. That's, true, and that's what we expected. So. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we hope that you have enjoyed this uh, two-part series as we dug a little bit deeper into some of the great information that Dr. Fred Dodini provides in his book. There's so much more to uncover. We really encourage you to go out and get the book for yourself. We will provide in our show notes again where you can purchase it and where to contact Dr. Fred Dodini if you have questions or comments about the content um, that he shares. And we hope you have a great week. Don't forget that if you also especially enjoyed this episode or prior episodes, we would love for you to go and rate us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and leave us a review. That is how other people can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the podcast. We also encourage you to share your favorite episode on social media with your friends and to comment and engage with us on our social media pages as well.